on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off, and I am very uh, lucky on this historic uh, day, the day after the indictment was made um, uh, public of Donald Trump for his uh, election interference and January uh, six events in our nation's capital. Uh, I'm lucky because we can discuss this. It's the day before. He's actually going to uh, be arraigned in federal court in D.C. Um, I have our district attorney, the Northwestern District Attorney, David Sullivan, with us to discuss uh, this historic and immensely important development in the history of our country. Hello, Mr. District Attorney. Good morning, Buzz. How are you? I am, uh, well, I am fascinated. Um, I got to be honest, I am relieved that finally, whatever, 28 months later, more than that, we are uh, seeing um, a real possibility that uh, the 45th president will be held to account for decisions that he made in uh, interfering with and refusing to accept the results of uh, what some have called the most secure election in our history. How are you? Well, I'm here because uh, of grave disappointment and grave fear for our country. Um, what happened on January 6th uh, was really uh, the culmination of uh, an individual, Donald Trump, uh, that was trying to overturn a legitimate election with very little fraud. And uh, this is a document that holds them accountable. Now, understand he's innocent until proven guilty. Uh, however, this has substantial facts backing up their claims. So you've read the entire 45 yes. pages? As have I. I've, I've tried to do a, a little abstract uh, of it, and I'm going to do that. But before we move on, uh, District Attorney Sullivan, you are elected. <clears throat> Elections are like part of your running for them, campaigning, in the beginning, deciding whether to run. You ran for register of probate here in Hampshire County and and uh, now for district attorney. How many terms? This is start of my fourth term. Of your fourth term. So um, the sanctity of the electoral process must be important to you. Absolutely. When I look at all the town clerks in my 47 communities, I've met most of them uh, over the course of you know 20 years in politics, how good they are. How great they How are. How honest they are. Um, this was really a claim against every one of these clerks, particularly in the seven states that he claimed victory, but there was nothing behind it. Uh, that's just such an important uh, thing for us to focus on. I, I just want to say, I don't want to make it personal and about me, but I will because I've been, you know, I've run for our planning board, I've won, and, uh, you know, I've... Uh, been a town moderator in Ashfield for 23 years. Every year, it's one year term, so I, I run every year. But you have more elections than I. You've uh, won more elections than I have. Far more. Yeah. I'm far more successful as a politician than you'll ever be, Dave yes. Sullivan. No, but seriously, um, on those uh, ballots when I'm not uh, on the ballot, my wife and I have been ballot counters. I think for about 48 years, something like that, in Ashfield. We come in. Uh, we get the form, we get the ballots in bunches of 50 with our colleagues, and we see ha the tedious. I'm just going to do a very quick synopsis. You walk into the polling place. They, there's two people that check you in, checking each other. You say, I am Buzz Eisenberg, and yeah. here's my address. 
once you check in, you go to the next table and somebody says, you say, I'm Buzz Eisenberg. They look at the people who just checked you in. They give him a little nod. They give me a ballot. I go over. I fill it out. I then come out and there's somebody at another table, two people. And I say my name and my address again. They check me off that I've finished. Then right next to it is a ballot box. I put my ballot in there and there's somebody, usually Duncan Coulter, cranks that thing. In the end of the day, when we count ballots, they check with the front table. How many people came in? 819. The out table, 819. The number on the box, 821. We have to count all over again because those three numbers have to be the same. It is so meticulous and so uh, honorable. And there's all these volunteers who make sure it happens, and every one of us felt insulted by the allegations. Over a million good Americans were part of the electoral process because they were doing that work at the grassroots. They were checking people in. They were checking people out. They were part of the counting process. And that's what's so important about our democracy. It's about the people in our democracy that do that very important but mundane work in many ways, checking people off, but how precious that is. And to attack that is so wrong. So when you read these 45 pages, David Sullivan, could you tell us what you experienced, what you saw there, um, what are your feelings, and what our listeners should know about this? I saw how precious our democracy is um, and how dangerous it was leading up to January 6th and what happened. Uh, because you had people that really wanted to undermine our vote. Our vote. Every uh, voter was insulted here. Yes, not only insulted, but violated, because um, whether you were from Massachusetts or some of those, those seven contested states, your vote was going to be thrown out, because if it was with fake electors, with all this fraud allegations that had no merit, and every single attorney general or every governor in that particular state stood up and said, hey. Wasn't that breathtaking to be reminded of? I mean, we knew all this back then, but to read it and, and see every people who said, I'm the secretary of state, I voted for Trump, I'm a lifelong Republican, but there was yeah. absolutely no I wanted fraud. him to win. Right. And, you know, there, there were two uh, speakers of the House that stood up. I think one Arizona. Arizona and Michigan, I think, was the other one. Correct. And they stood up and they just gave beautiful speeches about how precious our democracy is and how their vote, their certification was legitimate and that the false claims. It was really how conspiracy theories, how a train was running with conspiracy theories with absolutely no merit. Yeah. Uh before I, we actually talk about it in a little bit more detail, um, I am encouraging every listener to read the 45 pages. Usually it's legalese and, it's, and these indictments uh, are just boilerplate and not very interesting. This is a story. And what's really interesting, we were either eye or ear witnesses to much of what's being described mm -hmm. here. And did you remember everything that you read uh, when you read the, this indictment? Of course not. I mean, you, you forgot which claim was where and how many votes. And, you know, when they talked about, you know, there were 200 and more than 200,000 extra votes in Pennsylvania, you kind of forgot in the whole, uh, I, I, I call it the, the, what, the mist of war. It right. was kind of like, 
I didn't remember how much it was or what the actual claim was, but this puts it uh, in very specific form. So they're not running away from the facts. They're actually embracing the facts um, and matching that to the, to the law that was violated. And so I, uh, folks who have been watching this on TV, reading it in the newspaper probably know this, but let me just summarize. There are four counts that are alleged in this indictment. There's 45 pages of indictment. Um, there's one count of conspiracy. They're all counts of conspiracy. One is to defraud the United States. And that's because uh, it alleges that Trump uh, repeatedly uh, spread false claims about the November 2020 election while knowing that they were false. That's an important part that's going to have to be proven by, the, uh, by, by Jack Smith's prosecutors. And also that they were trying to discount legitimate votes for Biden. So that's the first count is a conspiracy to defraud all of us. The second count is one it's a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and that is organized planning, which is alleged throughout the indictment by Trump and his allies to disrupt the electoral vote certification, which was going to happen in January. That's the lead up to it. And you'll see everything from, as District Attorney Sullivan just pointed out, fake electors uh, in individual states just trying to disrupt the certification proceeding. Um, the third count alleges obstruction and an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, which was the official certification proceeding that was happening in a joint session of Congress on January 6th that was disrupted intentionally by Trump when he urged people to go down to the Capitol right now and stop it. Hopefully the vice president will do the right thing, but stop it, stop it. Let's be there. Let's show them what we've got. And... Count four is a conspiracy against rights. Probably the most interesting uh, of the four counts. Um, I haven't figured that one out, Buzz. That's a pre-election. That's a civil war statute. So it is. I've got to wrap my head around that later on. You're so. right. It's, it cons conspiracy against rights was passed after the civil war because uh, to stop members of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, and other similar organizations from intimidating and harassing and outright terrorizing blacks and black voters. Right. So it's. Um, the allegation is that he oppressed, threatened, or intimidated people in their right to vote in an election. And so uh, then the 45 pages meticulously uh, sort of shows why the, each of these counts is, is appropriate. As a I, I was very happy please. that the foreman's signature and name was not on the one that was released. Why? Because that person would be getting death threats this morning. Yeah, and and that was the underlying tone of every person who stood up for the rule of law, and that this was a legitimate election got death threats, and that's the nature of social media that you can do this anonymously. So you know, uh, I was very happy that that hopefully it's going to be sealed that those members of the grand jury um, do not become you know uh, victims of death threats. Boy, did you hear Jack Smith's? A uh, little statement, his little press conference. Yes, yeah, it was. And he went out of his way to talk about the heroes in the voting process that you just alluded to, a million U.S. citizens who make our elections, ha our national elections happen, and our state elections, for that yeah. matter. And, um, and he went out of his way to talk about the heroes that tried to protect the electoral process and the Capitol on January 6th. He was eloquent, I thought. Yeah. What were you thinking? It's moving. When, when you think about the capital, our seated democracy, you know, for 
hundreds of years um, being under attack. But not only being under attack, but what was going on in there, the certification of an election for president. That was what was under attack. Uh, the peaceful transfer of power. It's happened in our country over and over, from George Washington to the present. And this was the first time that there was a sitting president who did not want to relinquish his power after the people had spoken and every state had come in. And, you know, when you look at these margins of victory, yeah, they're very, they're small when you look at it in national context, but there's some states, I think Arizona had, you know, I don't know how many, I've got, I've got it here, some are, were 90,000 votes margin. Yeah. Um, you know, so um, you look at that, you know, Arizona had, yeah, 10,000, but New Mexico was 99,720. That's, that's not a contested election. Um, in Pennsylvania, 80,555. So these, these weren't uh, about one or two. And as you know, in town elections, many times those things are decided by one or two or three elections. But, you know, um, these weren't uh, narrow victories in the sense of five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 votes. They were in the thousands. They, they were, they were uh, clear victories. I yeah. guess that's the best way to say it. But this indictment, what what these 45 pages do, and please don't roll your eyes, listeners, when we say 45 pages. It's it's a smooth read. It's a fluid read. And so this is what happens. What He talks about the federal government's uh, function being violated, and then he explains in one, one and a half paragraphs what the function is, how electoral process runs. He explains it, you know, how you ascertain who the electors are, and and then how the certification process works. And he does it in a, in a paragraph and a half. Then he talks about the manner and the means by which the president and his allies had a conspiracy to subvert that function. And then, as you say, Dave Sullivan, he goes state by state and says, okay, here he alleged that dead people counted votes. Where their votes were counted. Uh, it, and it ended up being, uh, it was 10,000. You know, votes. Of course, whatever the was. I think he said it was thirty-two thousand. Yeah, it was. But it ended up being two. Okay, two. Yeah. You know, right. Uh, which is is wrong, but it's not a substantial conspiracy to overthrow uh, that vote or to subvert that vote in, in that state. We we are running a little bit over, and uh, forgive me for that. But I have to ask you. Some might say it's a marshmallow question. To me, it's a really important one because I too have taken oaths. You took an oath to become district attorney. Yes. And to whom did you take an oath, and uh, what were you thinking at the moment you took that oath? It's a very serious oath, and it's something to be taken in a grave way uh, because you're agreeing, you're taking an oath to the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of Massachusetts, and the laws thereof. Um, and so you can't violate that oath without violating your own principles and values. So you're held to that oath, and, uh, and that, that was where we, sh we saw the heroes. We saw the heroes that were at the Secretary of State level that took that oath in Georgia, Arizona, wherever they were certifying those votes. And Michigan, th Pennsylvania. And they, they, yeah. and they held to it, and thank, thank goodness they did. And three of them said, I took an oath. Yep. Uh, you know, I was asked, there's a book called The Guantanamo Lawyers, and, and I was asked to um, to contribute to that, and I was asked why I did what I did, and I said, I took an oath when I became a lawyer. 
We are talking with the district attorney for the Northwestern District, David Sullivan. I'm so grateful to have him here. We're going to continue talking about the Trump indictment for election interference and January 6th. We're going to be back right after this. Yeah, he's your man, cause Trump is on your side. Yeah, Trump is on your side. He's a billionaire who got a free ride, buddy. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday bread euphoria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza. Those croissants. Smell that bread. The baguettes. That New York rye. It's euphoria. Bread euphoria. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back. Our guest uh, is Northwestern District Attorney David Sullivan, whose job it is to uh, represent the people, us, in vindicating our justice system and the notion of fairness that we have. And we're talking about the allegations uh, contained in the indictment that we all learned of yesterday, which will uh, result in the arraignment of Donald Trump tomorrow at roughly 4 o'clock in the afternoon on charges that he conspired to defraud the United States and to obstruct election procedure. Dan, when we were on break, you said you had a question for the district attorney. Yeah, so uh, last night I was watching uh, Rachel Maddow talk about the indictment, and I think she asked the question that I had on my mind, which is this. When we look back at this period in history, um, she's, she said that we would be wondering why or how did the American people elect somebody like Donald Trump? I'm just curious what you think of that. Well, I think his first election uh, was a default. People didn't want Hillary Clinton. 
and they looked on an alternative, and they didn't really look under the hood. I mean, I don't think people really understood who Donald Trump was or could be until he was there. So, so I think on that level, uh, you know, the, the American people made that choice. But now you're looking at round two. Why would somebody vote for Trump today? And I think what Donald Trump has effectively done is make all this a political issue, not a legal issue, not about the facts or about the laws. He's violated uh, both in Georgia, Washington, D.C., you know, Florida. And I think a lot of it is that people become so loyal. How many people, I'd only ask if, if you're a Trump supporter, just please read this indictment and reflect. That's yeah. all I'd ask people to do. I'm not going to convince somebody who's a Trump supporter um, because there's so much that's out there. And what he did from the very beginning, he's he delegitimized the press and media fake news. I'd never heard of really fake news before that. So what you really do, and really in a dictatorship, is you take over the media or you eliminate it. And what he did was... Control what people think. Right. And in this case, you delegitimize legitimate media. Oh, ABC, that's fake. Oh, CBS, that's fake. And other media outlets. So then, of course, if you only watch... Fox News, or you only watch, uh, you know, some of these blogs that are out there, you're going to get a narrow vision of things. And, you know, I understand people's values. I mean, they, they value some things about Donald Trump um, that, you know, I probably value as well, but not the person. I mean, you got to look at, hey, are we uh, going to elect a moral, upstanding, ethical president in the future? Well, I don't see him as being ethical at all, based upon his multiple violations. It's like a criminal to me. Well, when somebody, uh, like you said, said delegitimizes the media, I would actually want to add something to that. And I think that you, you didn't say it, but I think it's implied. When you delegitimize an institution, you are also telling somebody that my voice is the legitimate voice. And that that you're listening to is the voice that is not legitimate. So in some ways you're saying, when I tell you something, believe it. Tell it, You know it to be true, even if you don't like everything that I'm doing or saying. Because I can hear a lot of Republicans be like, you know, I don't like what he does, but I'm still going to vote for him. Or I don't like this part about his character, but I'm still going to vote for him. And here's the reason why. To them, I think, in their mind, from what I've heard from opinion polls and other talking to people, it is they feel that the alternative is worse. So if you're given these two options, you would go for the guy. And I think Donald Trump sold, in my opinion, in 2016. I almost got into an argument at Starbucks to uh, this couple that was talking uh, at Starbucks in Amherst when it was still open that, you know, Donald Trump, maybe he will be a good president because, you know, his business dealings and he's a businessman. If we had that acumen in, in Washington, D.C., then he could, you know, fix things that are wrong because he's got the business skills. Yeah. What do you and have, I, five bankruptcies? Yeah, well, okay. you know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. adding facts. But if you can sell, but if you can yeah. sell that you're a business person, then people can just have yeah. this conversation. Yeah. And well, they, I, I just want to circle back to the beginning. Uh, I'm interrupting you, David, but the reason why is because um, I want to piggyback on what Dan started there when he was talking about history and Trump's attempt to delegitimize, as you say, uh, the institutions that he did. You hold a position. It's just for this region, but you're one of what, 14 uh, district attorneys? 11, yep. 11, sorry. 
Um, I, that, I didn't major in math. <laughs> so two of, us, two of us have two counties, so it, it confuses the math. All there. right. So um, your job is to preserve the institution which you inherited by virtue of your election. Are these institutions, our electoral system, our justice system, um, our media, the damage has been done by Trump and his allies. Can we salvage what we had? Absolutely. Um, the more that people participate as jurors, uh, as witnesses, we just need participation. I mean, that's the most important thing that we have, uh, in my opinion, is that participation. Uh, you know, that we need good people to show up for jury duty. We need good people to show up as witnesses. We, met, we, we can, I don't think that on the, on the grassroots level, on the local level, I think people understand how the justice system but works. But 70 million people voted for Donald Trump in 2020. Yeah, it's, it's and dangerous. Those, those yeah. 70 million people heard him say, oh, this judge, I don't, don't believe that judge, he's Mexican, or don't believe this woman because, you know, he just uh, denigrates the very institutions that most presidents at least gave paid lift service to celebrating everything from the military and its generals. He just denigrated the institutions. I'm worried because yeah. there's cracks in those institutions when 70 million people don't trust them. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most important things, and people may disagree, is to televise the trial. Demystify it. Let people watch. Let people listen. Otherwise, um, if he does end up losing, he's going to say it was it was a miscarriage of justice and, and whatever he usually spews out for uh, for what his facts are, which aren't facts. But I think it's important to televise uh, these hearings. You and know? and if uh, constitutional framers, they were really really clear that everyone is entitled to a speedy and public trial for. Serious offenses. Yeah, I mean, in Washington, D.C., no matter how big the courtroom, maybe 150 people could come in, but, hey, 300 million people in our democracy, 300 plus in our democracy, we just need to have, I think, the, the best thing is fresh air and, and opening things up. And for this particular set of proceedings, and there's now three indictments, hey, you're going to need courtroom TV to be there for a while, and some people may find the grind of a trial boring, but I think it's very important to have that, uh, that openness and that transparency. It is very important to have that openness and transparency. We're going to have to leave it there. District Attorney David Sullivan, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts this morning. It is an historic day. It's an important day. Uh, our republic is, we've learned it's more fragile than we thought it might be. And uh, each of us, it's up to each of us to make sure that we stand up for what we know is important. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Buzz. Our pleasure. District Attorney David Sullivan. We're going to be back. Well, we could talk about the, the um, indictment all day long, uh, but there is a, an important book about, uh, it's written for the opponents of critical race theory. We're going to be talking to author Dr. Walter Greeson right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. All four counties of Western Mass have been included in the latest disaster declaration by the USDA. 
The declaration allowed farmers from Berkshire, Franklin, Hampshire, and Hamden counties to apply for low-interest loans as well as refinancing for existing loans. They can also utilize the Emergency Conservation Program, which helps pay for cleanup costs following a natural disaster. The Amherst Pelham Regional School District is unveiling plans to make the school safer. Superintendent Michael Morris outlined a series of measures the school is taking to the community yesterday. Those steps include enhanced professional development for school employees and adjustments to school policies to ensure that every child has a safe, positive environment in which to learn and thrive as their authentic selves. This comes amid allegations of gender-based bullying and mistreatment of LGBTQ plus students at the middle school. The school will receive support for the initiatives proposed by Morris from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education Safe Schools Program for LGBTQ students, the Stonewall Center at UMass, and the Massachusetts Commission on LGBTQ Youth. The Board of Trustees at Forbes Library could be expanding in an effort to support its numerous programs. The Northampton City Council voted unanimously to approve an order to petition the state legislature for permission to make the amendment to increase the board from five to seven people. The probate court system must approve the petition before it is sent to legislature. Mostly sunny skies today, low humidity, and still a relatively cool high temperature of high of 74 to 78. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 70s, an overnight low of 50 to 56. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, scattered afternoon showers, a high of 76 to 80. Heavier showers and thunderstorms are likely on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
with us is Dr. Walter Greeson. He is an historian. He is a um, professor, and he's a chair of the Department of History at McAllister College. And he, as a historian who is preeminent in the field of Afrofuturism and black speculative arts, he uh, has edited a book along with Danny and Daryl Jerry um, uh, called Illmatic Consequences, the clapback to opponents of critical race theory. I want to welcome you to the show, Walter Greeson. Be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it is absolutely our pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. So um, before we start talking about critical race theory, um, I have to ask, this is an historic day. We have the indictment of our 45th president, um, yesterday we learned of it. We had the 45-page indictment. I was just speaking with our local district attorney about it. Tomorrow at 4 o'clock or so, he will be arraigned in, at, uh, in the Perryman Building, the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. I would just like to know your th thoughts, Dr. Greeson, about that indictment. Thank you so much. Yes, I was overwhelmed. I've, I've been working and studying the way we led to January 6th and then the consequences of the subsequent investigations and the move to the Department of Justice. And I think your conversation in the last segment pointed directly to the core of the issue, that this is about delegitimizing not just one institution in the United States, but really the idea of institutional authority. And, and that's what the former president was committed to, is that he wanted his voice to be the only institution in American society and only people who followed him and had his blessing would have any kind of legitimate Jordan voice in public discourse. And that, that is just the opposite of how our society was founded and has thrived. And so the thing that struck me as you had that conversation was that it reminded me so much of the United States in the antebellum period, particularly across the South, that there was one voice allowed to shape so many of the states that would become the Confederacy, that there was a singular perspective allowed to be kind of the core of who Americans were in those places. And this is why his base is across those same states, is that it's a very familiar, it's a very comfortable sense of how the world is ordered. And so that's what we're struggling with right now as a society, is how do we build a cohesive community, nation, where we allow multiple voices to share authority. And we, we had some sense of that ideal up until 1965. But after that point, there were increasing attempts to erode who could sit at the table, as opposed to enlarging the table and bringing everyone a space to sit and, and to participate. And so that's, that's the piece that I take away most from today, is that it's, it's not just about this former president. It's about everybody committed to the vision of just a single voice. And when I look back at those antebellum societies, it was really built on whoever owned the most land dictated the policy. Now it's whoever owns the largest company, whoever has the most wealth. It's, it's the same vision that we see with Elon Musk and with Twitter and social media, is that we want, there's this effort to get one voice to be the core of how we see ourselves and see our world. And we have to commit to a society where we welcome in all the voices and how we see ourselves and how we see each other. That, that is, those are such, I guess, apropos words to where we find ourselves this morning reading these indictments, and I hope everybody reads this indictment, uh, because I think, you know, we've had, I think, 27 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. I'm a lawyer. 
17 of them were to secure voting rights for people. 17 of those amendments had something to do with voting. We watched in the Donald Trump era, we watched an attack on the electoral system here. And apropos to your assault on the notion that critical race theory is somehow impure or inappropriate, critical race theory embraces the notion that if there's going to be change, we have to make sure everyone gets a chance to vote. And America includes people that Trump supporters may or may not think are worthy of voting, and that he tried to disenfranchise them. I, I guess my question is, how does this indictment interface, interface with the theory that uh, you have reflected in writing Illmatic Consequences, the clapbook to opponents of critical race theory? That's been the scariest part, is that I saw the roots of the challenge to attack civil rights in this country during the peak of the Trump administration, uh, 2018 into 2019. And then following his electoral defeat in 2020, that became an explicit campaign to attack schools, to attack school districts, to really transform every level of government, to eliminate these claims to civil rights for all people, to equal justice for all people. And then millions of, of people resonate with this idea. They don't want to hear contradiction. They don't want to escape their own perspective. And so that's ultimately what Illmatic Consequences does. Um, there's three levels to the book. The first section is about the actual accurate definition of critical race theory and, and how does it evolve? What, is, what are its methods? How does it shape the way we see the world? The second section is about this, this opposition, this propaganda campaign to redefine it as something as, as dangerous that, that people should, should reject just at the mention of, of the words or reading even just the abbreviation CRT. It's a conditioning reflex to make people um, fear each other and ultimately lash out out of that fear. And then finally, my, my, my real commitment to the book was the third section, was the, the consequences of the clapback. How do we actually build a, a just and equal society together, really for the first time? How do we rethink the foundations of what we consider the United States, the American world order? How do we go about making that closer to the ideal that we see framed in the Declaration of Independence? Well, Dr. Walter Greeson, the author of Illmatic Consequences, I, I have to ask you, um, what we're seeing is the ideal that we often see being pursued is, hey, let's eliminate affirmative action. Let's eliminate the possibility of softening the hardship of student debt. Let's um, uh, change the curriculum so that students understand the following. Slavery is really not so terrible. It gave people skills that they otherwise wouldn't have. And as an author, I have to ask you, your book is one that's going to be banned in a lot of jurisdiction because it addresses uh, the opposition of critical race theory in, in an analytical logical way to say there should be no opposition to critical race theory. How do you feel as an author and an editor um, about the prospect of having this book banned? I'll tell you, I, I've been in this work of creating more freedom for everyone around me since I turned 18 years old, really even before that. And so I would go into places where the Klan was organized. I would go into places 
where David Duke had dominated the way the campus or the town was organized. Um, this is who I am. Um, I exist in order to go to the places where other people have fear and, and to break the discourse and to open it up so that more people can participate. So the book is entirely aligned with my entire career. Um, it's, it's everything I've dedicated my life to rolled into about 300 pages, combining art, combining music and poetry, um, showing different ways that we can do this. And I think of my friend, um, Eddie Glaude, who's a professor at Princeton. And he just had a really horrendous confrontation over the weekend with the people who are organizing this resistance uh, to, to condemn critical race theory. Um, thousands, tens of thousands of people attacking him every minute of the day for two or three days. And I had to say to him, I was like, remember your James Baldwin, go back and think of Fannie Lou Hamer. Look back to Frederick Douglass. These people all faced what you're facing and much more. And that's, that's the strength. And it's not just about civil rights activists or abolitionists. It's our treasure as humanity to tap into that strength that says, I'm not afraid. I am strong enough to stand up and hear a disagreeing voice, to hear a different perspective and rethink the position I'm coming from, to not just act out and lash out with anger or hatred. Um, that's the worst part about what's, what's happened with, with this discourse over the last several years is that it's increasingly violent. And I'm already seeing an uptick in the ways that people are attacking each other. Um, there was a man in, in Brooklyn um, stabbed to death a couple days ago, um, essentially for being gay and, and dancing at a gas station. Um, these incidents, just like the school shootings, uh, the public mass shootings that we're seeing, they're going to escalate as long as we're not having these conversations and we're bringing more people to the tin table. So that's the work that I do. That's what I study and how to turn us away from the path of violence um, that actually ends up destroying not just the people killed, but it actually destroys the souls of the people who inflict the violence as well. Um, I was, uh, Dr. Uh, Greeson, um, can you talk a little bit about the, um, well, about the art of uh, rap music in the 90s, in 2000s, and the importance of that in the book and how um, that art form connects to today and to the, the struggles that you're talking about, and, and historically, of course, as well. But uh, talk about that importance in the book. I, I really want to understand why use that um, uh, framework and, and lens. So, yeah, this, this is at the very, very beginning. I, I talk about this in, in the introduction, is that uh, the, the storytelling aspects the ability to articulate your experience, um, the kind of highs and lows of your life is, is one of the fundamental characteristics of being a human being. And so storytelling is a core methodology to critical race theory. It, it shapes then law and jurisprudence. The career of Thurgood Marshall stands as testimony to this, but that is what hip hop is. It was people who had no voice, who were unemployed, who are struggling with poverty, often with addiction, um, trying to make ends meet, often in ways that would get them sent to jail. Those people who had no real claim to authority bonded together, stood together, and talked to each other, and then began to rhyme together and make music together. And that organic origin 50 years ago, August of 1973, when I was born, that window 
for a decade just grew organically from the streets. And then from there took on the dimension that shaped my life to open a door to become more of a scientist, to become more of an historian. And that you have an entire generation of people around the world between the mid 1980s and the early 2000s that it wasn't just about kind of the commercial aspects of hip hop or the sexual aspects of hip hop, but it was actually about a way of seeing themselves in a deeper, more fundamental, often spiritual way, and a way to connect to a community that was not being acknowledged. And so this is the core of why Illmatic Consequences is framed this way. It looks at the peak of that period with the Illmatic album of 1994 by um, Nasir Jones. And Nas is storytelling. He's talking about the experiences in a way that continues to animate people around the world to say, I want that voice. I can say that about myself. I can talk about my family and my community. And frankly, if we saw a greater embrace of this in many of the small towns and rural communities, not just in the US, but around the world, it would break down the kind of ethnic nationalism, the chauvinism, the kinds of impulse that we see represented by Vladimir Putin and, and Russia's attempt to reestablish empire in Ukraine. Those things all poison us. And hip hop gives us a blueprint to heal, to recover, and to connect and, and build stronger, more resilient community. We are speaking with Dr. Walter Greeson. He and Danian Daryl Jerry have written the book Illmatic Consequences The Clapback to Opponents of Critical Race Theory. It is uh, as academically rigorous as it is readable, but in any event, it's talking about where we're at at this point in our history. Um, and as Dan uh, asked about, there's the use of hip-hop, social science, hip-hop essays uh, to storytell and to address the marginalization of black in our history that just can't be denied. We're going to be back and talk more with Dr. Greeson about his book right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. You love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Art walks, Holyoke Mills, cars and coffee. What's going on? A look around the valley with provisions. Arts walk in Brattleboro, Friday, August 4th. Arts night out in East Hampton, Thursday, August 10th. In Northampton, August 11th. Arts walk Greenfield, Friday, August 25th. Get walking. Blues legend Robert Johnson's 97-year-old stepsister, Annie Anderson of Amherst, reads from her book, Brother Robert, Growing Up with Robert Johnson. With blues banjo by Hubby Jenkins. Saturday, August 26th at Bombex. Cars and coffee at the Mill District in North Amherst. Sunday morning, August 20th. Vintage, custom, and exotic cars. Coffee by Futura Coffee Roasters. Cheeses of France. A dive into French cheese, culture, and history. August 14th at Provisions, North Amherst. 
This is Jim Neal with What's Going On, a monthly look around at food and beverage, arts and music, and anything cool. What's Going On is presented by Provisions, wine, beer, cheese. Free tastings Friday, 4 to 7, at the foot of Crafts Avenue in downtown Northampton, in the Mill District in North Amherst, and at the Longmeadow Shops. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back talking with Walter Greeson, educator and uh, scholar, and uh, the co-editor and compiler of the book Illmatic Consequences, the Clap Book to Opponents of Critical Race Theory. Dan, during the break, you said you had a question for Dr. Greeson. I do. And I guess my question is, uh, going back to the title of your book, um, why choose Nas in centering that story? Uh, what was just for people who don't know, it's N-A-S. He is a rapper. Yes, from the 90s, yeah. Um, I mean, you could have chosen many voices from back then. I mean, we, we heard Tupac, Biggie, um, Lauren Hill. I mean, there are so many different voices. Why his in, in your book? So it goes to the chronology of, of how I've studied hip hop as an art is that that window from the mid 1980s to the early 2000s, it's not just the original school or the golden age, it's a window where it transformed world culture. And so that's why Nas in particular um, is considered, if not the greatest lyricist, certainly he, I don't know anybody puts him outside of that group. And so his work actually, and his success as an artist, led to him creating an endowment for hip hop studies at Harvard University. And really the heart of the book is the artwork by Stacy Robinson, who's at the University of Illinois. And his work basically was funded by Nas to create the art that explores the way hip hop transforms our politics, transforms our lives. And so with Stacy's art, in the core of the text, then we began to then develop around it. Okay, how do we combine this notion of black studies and critical race theory? And we look back to Derek Bell's work and Kimberly Crenshaw in the early 1980s in framing critical race theory, and then sweep forward and include work about Afrofuturism, which is really the context for Robinson's art, and talk about how do we build a different kind of future that combines African influence and indigenous influences in this century. And then at the core of the book, of course, is the condemnation of this propaganda campaign, the way that these very important tools are being misrepresented. So all of that was derived from Nas's Illmatic, um, both materially and also kind of psychologically, sociologically. Dr. Greeson, in the minute or so that we have left, are you hopeful? These are dark times in terms of understanding that the complexion of our country has changed. It is not, race is, is part of it. I thought we would be growing linearly in a more civilized direction, but we seem to be in reverse. Are you hopeful? Yeah, you said the word, key word right there was linear. Um, the progress is not even and smooth and straight ahead at all times. It bends and twists and takes us in unexpected directions. 
Um, but I am a student of Dr. King and of Nelson Mandela. Um, at the worst moments, when it's darkest, that is right when the sun begins to rise, when mm. we begin to see new light. And so I come from a tradition of love and faith, and I believe in my fellow human beings. Um, people know when, when they've, they've encountered a poison and they reject it. And it's just helping them see, see the, the, the bad consequences, the difficulties that would lie ahead if we continue down a path of destruction. And so um, I, I have faced death threats and harassment <laughs> for years and years. Um, standing up now, I, I see the coalition around the world that believes the truth, and I stand with that. I just love the image. Thank you for reminding me. It's always darkest just before dawn. The book is Illmatic Consequences, the clap back to opponents of critical race theory. If you care about the future of our country, you have to accept the fact that we have to be more equity, inclusion, diversity. That's what we're all about. Uh, so please check out at your local bookstore the book. Ilmatic Consequences. Thank you, Dr. Greeson, for joining us. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Remember, we don't just talk the talk. We all try, like Dr. Greeson, to walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP North 15 WHMP This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg and Bill Newman is uh, off today. Um, he should be back in studio with us tomorrow and Friday. Um, we have two very special guests talking about a very important uh, thing Jane Stevenson and Kate Stevens will be talking to us about the Community Reparations Fund, but uh, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, mention the fact that today is an extraordinarily important uh, day in the history of the United States. The uh, person who was entrusted with leading um, our uh, and preserving our system of justice, our the institution, our electoral system. Uh, was indicted uh, yesterday uh, in a 45-page indictment that, um, if you haven't read it, I really urge you to read it, particularly if you are a Trump supporter. I think it's critical that uh, you take a look at this. It is what we call a speaking indictment. It um, lays out in great detail. It summarizes that which many of us were eye and ear witness to uh, during the 2020 uh, election season and thereafter, culminating, of course, in January 6th and the assault on our 
democracy in the capital that is the uh, seat of it. It alleges four counts, a count of a conspiracy to defraud the United States by spreading false claims about the November 2020 election and by discounting legitimate votes by um, uh, asking secretaries of state in seven states as detailed in the indictment to um, eliminate, not count, throw out uh, legitimate votes of people who voted for uh, Joe Biden rather than Donald Trump. There's a second count of conspiracy to con obstruct an official proceeding. Uh, that is the organized plan by Trump and his allies to disrupt the electoral votes uh, certification leading up to January uh, 6th when it's required to occur per our Constitution. There is a third count of obstruction, uh, an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, which was that certification process to block Congress from, uh, in a joint session from engaging in the certification of the electoral vote. And finally, a fourth count, a conspiracy against rights. If you haven't heard of that, uh, that is uh, a charge that results from post-Civil War where attempts to, quote, oppress, threaten, and intimidate people in the exercise of their right to vote. Um, it was passed after the Civil War to stop Ku Klux Klan members and other similar organizations from intimidating and harassing and outright terrorizing black voters. So um, it is a momentous day when the person who's entrusted in preserving our justice institutions is in fact charged with, uh, for his own benefit, in order to retain power uh, for he thwarted, he interfered with what many have called, including Republican secretaries of state, perhaps the most secure election in the history of the United States, be spoiled by Donald Trump's claims and continuing claims. If you haven't read it, read it, it is 45 pages. It is a story. You'll remember much of it. Um, and some of us oft cited when I was watching the talking heads on network cable TV last night, um, I kept seeing people cite to one ironic comment, which is um, when Donald Trump asked Vice President, his Vice President Mike Pence, to not certify and to join him in trying to decertify the results of the election, um, Mike Pence said he wouldn't do that, the Constitution forbids it, at which point Donald Trump is said in the indictment to have said to his vice president, you're too honest. That is a comment that I just can't seem to shake out of my head. But uh, meanwhile, we have, to, uh, we have an important conversation that we're going to engage in with uh, two guests that are here joining Dan and I in studio. They are Kate Stevens and Jane Stevenson. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, let me start with you, Kate. What is community reparation? fund and why is there a community reparations fund okay hi buzz um it's nice to be here thank you for inviting us um and i feel like as you do the history you bring us up today about the history it's all related it feels like it's been one long story of injustice particularly towards people of color towards indigenous people so i, I feel like we're this is one step that we're taking so um, I'm part of a group called um, the Reparations Collective, and we've done a lot of educational work and uh, felt like that was our calling to let people understand the whole concept of reparations to 
to a peoples who have been so oppressed all through slavery and then for all the years since through, you know the history, Jim, Jim Crow, redlining, every, in every way, which has left uh, black families, African-American families, with a, a tenth of the wealth of white families for, for the historical reasons, not because just bias, which is part of it. So anyways, I, th- I think we would say... I think you'd agree, Jane, that what really needs to happen is the United States government needs to step up and take responsibility. And and that's not going to happen immediately. And in the meantime, we felt like as individuals, we can at least do some small part. Like, uh, And we based it on the idea of a IRA. People do this for their own retirement. You set up certain money every month or so, is to do a collective and not retirement, but reparations account. So uh, like instead of an IRA, a CRA, and we ended up calling it the Collective Reparations Fund. And we've just gone public with it. We've done, we've been doing this for several years, but we just went public and had a press release and have begun sending out, you know, invitations to invite people to not contribute, but to make payments uh, that we're due, you know, to pay off our debt. And before before I move on to Jane, how do people contact the fund? Well, for those of us older and old-fashioned, you can write a check uh, to Collective Reparations Fund and send it to— Oh, go ahead. Okay, send it to P.O. Box 81, Shelburne Falls. Okay, so if you're in your car, uh, say it more slowly so that they can remember because they can't write. Okay, um, you can make on a check to—you remember those things— pieces of paper, you uh, make on a check to Collective Reparations Fund, Box 81, Shelburne Falls. Very good. Jane Stevenson, um, right now, well, this year, we've had on the show the woman uh, who was uh, took on the mantle of reparations in Ann Arbor and set a national example for how municipalities could get involved. She was fantastic. We have Northampton, we have Amherst, all exploring reparations. So uh, how does your fund interface with what these communities throughout this country, I hope, are, are considering? Thanks, Buzz. Um, well, you know, like Kate said, we're really looking for a national um, policy change in terms of or policy enactment in terms of reparations and we're really working on all different levels we're working in you know we're advocating for that we're advocating for it on a state level and um and there are so many different things that reparations mean you know reparations are uh, part of reparation enactment would be to to make a people whole again and that could be financially that could be spiritually it could be um, in terms of health care. And there's also apology and um, there's guarantee of non-repeat. So there's lots of factors in reparations. And our and and the fact that towns, individual towns, are making brave steps towards reparations is amazing. And we're really proud of that. And we've seen it in Evanston, Illinois. We've seen it in California. We've seen, now we're seeing it in Amherst and Northampton. Forgive me, I said Ann Arbor, and I meant Evanston. Oh, Illinois. okay. I was like, I haven't heard about Ann Arbor no, yet. That's, that's so because rad. my brain is old. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so those 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 small municipalities making those actions are great, and we're go- even going more micro with this, and we're asking individuals to consider what our debt is to 
to this system. And, um, and then as we collect these funds, we are then twice a year distributing this money to um, local, you know, pretty much Massachusetts-based organizations run by black folks and, and helping to make those organizations more, more whole. Let me ask some of the questions which are often asked for those who are not convinced that reparations is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Let me put you to the task. Some people particularly, and, and Kate, in describing the need to uh, for reparations with respect to the African-American horrific history we have in this country uh, stemming from slavery. We also, you also mentioned indigenous people. We have BIPOC, we have indigenous people who were the victims of genocide in this country. Not to minimize how the horrors of slavery, but genocide isn't so good. We have people that we have oppressed who aren't just African Americans. So why should we focus our reparations efforts just on African Americans? We shouldn't. That's not what we're doing. Um, we have part of right now our focus on the rep- community reparations fund. The monies are going to African American organizations, but we also have an indigenous reparations committee um, as part of the reparations collective. And a lot of the education and outreach that we do is um, does kind of cover the dual the dual group of African Americans and indigenous people. You could make the case, and I would not argue with you, that a lot of oppressed groups in our country deserve reparations. Um, I think you could also make the case, and I would not argue with you, to say that indigenous folks and African Americans have borne the brunt of the systemic um, policies uh, that have have made their lives currently way, 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 way less just than especially white folks. Kate Stevens, uh, uh, let, me, let me ask you another question which we often hear, which is, I wasn't alive back then. I, wasn't, I didn't enslave anybody. I didn't kill anybody. Those were not even my ancestors. I, my ancestors came from Eastern Europe and came through Ellis Island. So what do you say to people who say, why should we be supporting those people that we didn't oppress? Mm-hmm. That's a classic response, and um, I understand why people think that way, but I think if you study history at all, you will learn that we have what we have, I being a privileged white person, because of what happened for, you know, 400 years beforehand. It's like the United States became the economic power it became because of slavery. When you don't have to pay laborers, you can make a lot of money, and the North benefited from that also. Then there's um, incidences like the GI Bill after the war- World War I, and everybody was getting, and two, the GI Bill allowed people to get uh, housing, and uh, there were land grants given to settlers to move out to the West. That was never given to African Americans even after emancipation, you know, the 40, 40 um, acres and a mule never really happened. I mean, it happened for uh, a couple of years and then it was taken away. So, uh, so if you don't have land and you can't get the money to get a house and you're not given money with, to go out west with a land grant, you, don't, you can't build up anything. So today, we, I still benefit from that because I, I own a house. I own a house because my parents owned a house. 
And when they sold their house, I got some money, and I could buy a house. And and if you never start with that kind of asset, you the can't. Descendant it's of today. Those people live today. We are talking to Jane Stevenson, Kate Stevens. We're going to take a break. We're talking about the Community Reparations Fund. But before we go, one more time, how do people get in touch with and support the fund? Well, you can you can contribute to P.O. Box 81, Shelburne Falls. You can also, with a check, and you can also go to our website, which is the reparationscollective.org, and there's a donate button there if you are part of the group, the people who like to do PayPal. There you go. Kate, Stephen, you know that old piece of paper you were calling a check? Yeah. Might be easier for people to remember that. Yeah. Yes. We're going to be right back. <laughs> we are talking to Jane uh, Stevenson and Kate Stevens. It is the Community Reparations Fund. We'll be right back. I'm mad. Got to get back. I need some get back. Pay back. Pay back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. People here are raving about QC Kinetics and how regenerative medicine has changed their life. People like Helen, an avid mountain climber who got sidelined when an accident left her knees in constant pain. I was not able to train or do really anything on my knee. Helen was told surgery would be her only option. But then she found QC Kinetics and was treated with natural biologics designed to repair and restore tissue in her knees. Three months later, she was climbing the highest mountain in North America. I got a very quick resolution to my pain. I began treatment in March, and I summited Denali June the 7th. It was super successful, and I recommend everyone seek out QC Kinetics as an alternative to surgery. Get your life back with lasting results. No surgery, no drugs, no downtime. Call QC Kinetics today. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And I am here with Jane Stevenson and with Kate Stevens. Um, we're talking about the Community Reparations Fund with, in which they are uh, involved and um, trying to remedy. Uh, it's remedial in nature. It is uh, what can we do for those people who didn't have benefit of privilege and who, in fact, suffered oppression during slavery, during uh, war, literally, uh, for indigenous people, um, so let me turn to you, Kate Stevens, and ask this. 
what form should reparations take? Now, we've heard some people say it should be in the form of uh, tuition breaks, that is, so that people have the opportunity to join in the American dream and to uh, have a, a better life as a result of uh, getting educated and becoming more employable. Some people think that it's for housing, without affordable housing, um, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think, what form should reparations take? Or what process should we use to determine what form reparations should take? Well, there, there is a bill, H.R. 40, in the federal government for the first time since 1989 when it was first proposed. It, early this year, it did get listened to in the Senate and assigned to the um, committee on the, of the judiciary. It has gotten quiet since then, so nothing's happened. But it at least got assigned to a committee, which is a first step. Um, and that the idea of that, and the House concurred, in the House, and um, so it's been assigned to the, or no, it happened in the House. I'm forgetting. Um, and in in Massachusetts, same thing. There's a there's a House bill and a Senate bill, and they're both have now been assigned to the Joint Committee on the Judiciary. So and you're saying they're, they're trying to. Uh Talk about if reparations are happening, what form would reparations take? Yes, exactly. So I feel like on a national level and a state level, at least the at least the words are getting out. You know, it's a, it's a concept that people are at least willing to send to a committee, which might mean nothing. But um, I, I just say that to say th- these bills are both about studying reparations. What could it look like? What because I feel like you're, it should be about education. It should be about housing. It's two of the biggest, biggest have, factors, I'd well, say. Well, we have nutrition. We have access healthcare. to health care. And, and if you look at the statistics on any of those, people of color, BIPOC folk, have less in the world of housing and housing assistance and health care and uh, education, and we've just eliminated affirmative action. And that, to me, that was, that was I don't know whether you'd call it reparations. I mean, I would call it reparations. Sure, it, it's, it's remedial it's, we, in nature. We owe, we owe it. It's, right. it's not like we're doing this big favor. It's like this is a debt we owe to people that we have so oppressed for hundreds of years. Well, let me ask you that, Jane Stevenson, which is here we are we, right now. We are living in a time where our Supreme Court says that race may not be considered in college admissions. We have, uh, it, it is a time when critical race theory is openly ridiculed by governors and senators, the highest levels of our government, openly ridiculed that uh, anyone who wants to talk about critical race theory is just too politically woke, Right. What a time for you to be focusing on community, community reparations fund. Um, and what do you say if, if I ask you, why is it timely? It was, it has been timely for 400 years. So, um, you know, if not now, then when? And I think that, I mean, I have so much to say. I think that white folks, we do a good job of like wringing our hands and wondering like, you know, being kind of torn up inside about racism, some white folks. And, um, and we do a really good job of like listening to the news and getting like really mad, but not taking action. And so I think that this is a way that we can, 
I find it like a, a path towards liberation for progressive white folks to think like, you know, I can't enact a government policy. I can't change the Supreme Court. I can't change the minds of uh, those indoctrinated into racism. But what I can do is recognize my own path and my own privilege and know that by hook or by crook, I probably am more comfortable and safe than most African-Americans and indigenous people and all BIPOC in my community or in external communities. And so what I can do is make a tiny sacrifice for my, uh, my own income and put that money towards a reparations fund that can get distributed. And, um, you know, like the fact that, that the median income for African-American families is is 10% less is, you know, that the white folks have 10% higher medium income means that I could conceivably turn over 10% of my income. And then I would, I would never be on par with African American families because I have all sorts of other external, um, benefits, but there's like a small bit of parity there just turning over a little bit of my income. And, you know, if, if, I, if I don't feel comfortable with 10%, some folks give $5 a month towards the reparations fund. And it, and it is, a, is a liberation for us to recognize that we can make good with this. Kate Stevens, you mentioned that earlier, that uh, periodic payments is a good way to just commit to pledge mm-hmm. the periodic payments. Uh, how is the fund administered? That is, who takes care of it? Who makes sure that it's being done in a kosher way? and that it's going to be distributed in a fair way. Mm. It's it's a bank account through Greenfield Savings Bank and it, we for the last few years when we've been doing more educational work, we, it's just been an internal fund, just those of us on the committee. And and the committee has grown and gotten smaller and grown and gotten smaller over the last like 3 years. Um but we've always put money into that fund and so last year we distributed what we had in there which was $7,000 and we distributed uh, uh, divided between two groups, and they're not just um, there. It's not black-owned businesses; it's it's black organizations that do reparations work. Advocacy so, groups and reparations yeah. groups. Yeah. Um. So at this point, we just we have this bank account, and um, the money comes in. We I'm keeping track of all the checks. And Jane is keeping track of the money that comes through our, our website and PayPal. And then we send on a note. And then hopefully we keep that we have those emails so that it can become a community of people that care about this. Because part of it, when we send letters out to people asking if they're willing to buy into this whole concept, um, we are beginning a conversation. So I feel like it's still educational work that we're doing, even as we ask, we're saying, we're not asking for a contribution. We're, we're asking for you to consider this and think about what would you feel comfortable about and feel good about offering. So we call it more like a payment rather than a contribution. And so then we hopefully grow the group of people that are interested and we'll continue to do the educational work. The collective is committed to educational work also, not just collecting this fund, but talking to people who don't get it at all or, or really want to understand. So, And also, I'm going to just jump in for a second, um, that we have two accountability partners. The Reparations Collective has two, rep- has two accountability partners. They're blo- both black reparationists. 
Um, and we do a lot of back and forth with them about what our actions are so that we can stay accountable with our promises. And there's been a lot of promises that have been not kept between white people and people of color. So we're feeling very serious about keeping those promises. And they, when we have an idea of who we should, where we should distribute some of the monies, we check in with them and they uh, have given us the green light go on, on those ideas. And the last thing I want to say just around this is when you ask the question, like, you know, what should reparations look like? One of, um, one of our accountability partners has said nothing about us without us. So I really think it is up to the oppressed communities to decide how reparations um, looks. And, and that's why our work with our accountability partners feels so important to us. So one more time. Box 81, tell us how to get in touch with the fund and how to donate to the fund. Kate Stevens. Collective Reparations Fund, um, Box 81, Shelburne Falls, or our website, reparationscollective.org. Yep. And there's a donate button button on on there. On every page. There you go. So we can feel that we're part of the uh, attempt at making people whole um, for the oppression that this country sadly, was built on. Thank you so much for all you do and for being with us today, Jane Stevenson, Kate Stevens. It's community reparations. Consider carefully donating to the fund. Thanks, We're going to be... My pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back with Lauren Rollins. She's going to discuss a new training and educational policy in the schools here in Northampton right after this. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. All four counties of Western Mass have been included in the latest disaster declaration by the USDA. The declaration allowed farmers from Berkshire, Franklin, Hampshire, and Hamden counties to apply for low interest loans as well as refinancing for existing loans. They can also utilize the Emergency Conservation Program which helps pay for cleanup costs following a natural disaster. The Amherst Pelham Regional School District is unveiling plans to make the school safer. Superintendent Michael Morris outlined a series of measures the school is taking to the community yesterday. Those steps include enhanced professional development for school employees and adjustments to school policies to ensure that every child has a safe, positive environment in which to learn and thrive as their authentic selves. This comes amid allegations of gender-based bullying and mistreatment of LGBTQ plus students at the middle school. The school will receive support for the initiatives proposed by Morris from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education Safe Schools Program for LGBTQ students, the Stonewall Center at UMass, and the Massachusetts Commission on LGBTQ Youth. The Board of Trustees at Forbes Library could be expanding in an effort to support its numerous programs. The Northampton City Council voted unanimously to approve an order to petition the state legislature for permission to make the amendment to increase the board from five to seven people. The probate court system must approve the petition before it is sent to legislature. Mostly sunny skies today, low humidity, and still a relatively cool high temperature of high of 74 to 78. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 70s, an overnight low of 50 to 56. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, scattered afternoon showers, a high of 76 to 80. Heavier showers and thunderstorms are likely on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. 
It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Fitting in matters. Not feeling left out, it's only natural, especially in high school. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or into technology, you can thrive at the Hartsbrook School. Childhood gives way to adolescence and you want to explore nearly every new thing you encounter or master one thing. Hartsbrook Education gives you time to breathe and focus. Learning is unhurried and intentional and never institutionalized. Subjects are often integrated, studying history through the lens of architecture, for example, or social studies by working for food justice. Hartsbrook prepares you to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for yourself and your community. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus in Hadley. New students welcome in any grade. Schedule a visit on the Hartsbrook School website. Just call or email the admissions office. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. This is, uh, we have a very special and unique um, uh, organization to talk about with its founding president. Um, It is the Western Massachusetts Policy Center. We're talking about, uh, well, we'll find out what we're talking about when we talk to President Lauren Rollins, who uh, is that founding president. And hello to you, Lauren. Hello to you. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here in the studio. It's great. So um, uh, by way of admission, I don't know much about the Western Mass Policy Center. So could you introduce me and our listeners to it? Sure. So the Western Massachusetts Policy Center is essentially a think tank, uh, which is, for those who aren't familiar with the term, a public policymaking organization. Generally, we Uh, do research that informs public policy and how it's deployed. And then we uh, write about uh, best practices within policy and get those ideas out into the world. Um, We also uh, help legislators to educate legislators about public policy and about certain um, issues that they may need to coalesce around. Um, And we also coalesce people together Um, So when we find that there are multiple disparate groups who are working on similar policy or policy that is tangential, um, we serve as a coalescer, aggregate data together, and then translate so that um, things that are very complicated and um, often difficult to explain get made more palatable for people so they can understand how public policy will affect them directly. It really sounds not only interesting, but important. So let's Let's dive in a little. First is a dumb question. Is there a brick-and-mortar 
place that the that the policy center is located in? So there isn't one yet. However, um, that is a big push that we are currently engaged in is seed funding to uh, open up a brick and mortar. So we serve all four counties of Western Massachusetts, um, but we will be located in Northampton mainly because it's sort of central to the four counties if, if there is such a thing. Um, and uh, that brick and mortar will is something that makes us as a think tank and public policy organization very unique because we will be, to my knowledge, the only think tank in the country that is open to the public, where the public can come in and if they are experiencing a problem or have ideas about broken systems or areas of public policy that need to be changed, we aggregate that data, collect it. We will help them directly if we can, or if we cannot help them, we will connect them with a community partner, someone who's already doing that work in the in the uh, four, across the four counties. Um, or if we, uh, you know, if we can't connect them directly with someone, we'll at least make a warm handoff for them to make sure they don't fall through the cracks, which often happens when people are seeking assistance. Uh, are you listening, Brookings? Let me in. <laughs> Ask me questions. No, but seriously, who are we? Is it, it is obviously um, you, Lauren Rollins, but who else? So right now, um, because we're a brand new organization, we've been, uh, I started the organization in earnest last May of 2022. We didn't get our C3 until that July, so we're about a year C3 old. C3 meaning 501C3 tax-exempt status. Yes, we are a tax-exempt nonprofit organization. So people could donate to you and they could uh, write it off. Absolutely, yes. Um, and so we've been up and running just for about a year. During that time, I've been funding, seed funding for it, um, which is huge. And we'll talk, I'm sure, about the, what that will go to pay for. Um, and uh, basically, that's just meant creating the infrastructure for the organization, getting all of the pieces in place, creating the model and standing up the model and getting all of the infrastructure in place so that when the fellows join us, and they are really the center of the project, is that in addition to um, it being a think tank. Think tanks are normally populated by very elite, well-educated, generally white men um, who are in leadership positions at think tanks. Um, and uh, there is a lot of privilege required to get to those places. So our fellows um, will actually be taken directly from communities who are people who have experienced broken systems and been living through those systems and having to try to navigate them. And we will take those fellows and they will actually be creating public policy for us. And the only credential um, to work at the policy center as a fellow is lived or practical experience in a broken system from a marginalized or historically excluded background. So is this a collaborative process? That is, uh, when you decide um, maybe we should explore this arena and talk about what policy initiatives might be a good idea for us to sort of uh, develop or at least dissect and talk about, who's doing that? So that's a great question. So in a traditional think tank, it's done from the top down. Normally, it's wealthy donors or special interests, whoever's paying the bills for the think tank. And then it becomes then the think tank leadership's decision to decide what areas of policy to work that on. That almost turns into a lobbying kind of situation. It's very hard to distinguish between, uh, particularly in D.C. anymore, it's very difficult to distinguish between public policy research and lobbying. It should not be so difficult, but it has become that way. Um, so... Uh, how we differ is that our fellows actually create those uh, strategic planning directions and figure out based upon our fellows and what broken systems they want to change, they create our policy areas and our policy priorities. So having had the experience of knowing all of the nuances of what's actually broken in trying to navigate the system, they determine what needs to be fixed and in what order. It's so interesting that today of all days, when we just saw this, we just read this indictment of uh, the 45th president um, 
And we, uh, what we were talking about on the air with our district attorney um, was, uh, well, uh, are these institutions which were uh, still remain under attack? Institutions like justice, institutions like our educational systems, and you know, books are being burned, and the Supreme Court is eliminating affirmative action. How does the Western Massachusetts Policy Center determine what policies it should examine? Um, that is, are they certain areas of of the polity, that polity with the T? Um, what what is it, Lauren? How do you go about that? Well, I mean, I think to start with, because we're um, located uh, regionally and focused regionally, right? Um, it makes that somewhat uh, easier to narrow down because there are evergreen issues across the four counties of Western Massachusetts that will always be areas that we can continue to improve. What does evergreen issues mean? So uh, evergreen issues are things that will always be issues, and uh, those things are things like um, affordable housing, infrastructure, regional planning and development, economic development generally and broadly, but particularly for ex historically excluded and marginalized people. Um, and uh, also, uh, I mean, there are many, many areas that, I mean, children, women, and families, uh, policy around uh, um, health care and um, uh, just all, all the things that we require every day and have to figure out how to get are those areas of evergreen policy. There, there is uh, a really interesting concept, uh, Dan. Lauren Rollins says, things that impact on people's lives. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. Um, so my question for you is this, um, there is, from, from what I'm hearing from your organization, so it's people who are fellows who have uh, lived experience. How do you uh, decrease the gap between lived experience and the law? And I ask that because, for example, if I had a housing issue and I lived, let's say, through housing issues, mm -hmm. And I don't really understand housing law, but Buzz does. I could be the leader of that, but how do I affect change if there are a bunch of structures and institutions that live over me? Am I making sense? I don't You're know. I did not articulate that. You're making perfect sense, and I'm very glad you asked that question. <laughs> because it sounds great. I mean, this is one of my criticisms. Sorry to interrupt. But as just one of my criticisms is a lot of people have lived experience but might not necessarily have the knowledge of how institutions function in the democratic society and laws to challenge those things that they're experiencing. To how to create policy. To how to create policy and change. And so that is uh, the center of the, what we do a little bit differently at the policy center is that rather than privileging the expertise of people who already have educations and those educations are academic and longstanding careers, the centerpiece of our think tank is a vocational policy training program. And so the fellows don't need academic experience because the board and the all of the advisory committee members and the other staff like me who do have that experience, um, we either donate that time, agree to donate that time as um, resources for that, or it's built into the vocational policy training program that we will train them in for the year that they're with us in the fellowship. Oh. What does that mean, vocational training? So um, one of the things that uh, I used to help run a think tank in D.C., and what we uh, normally would see is a lot of um, early career policy professionals who come out of elite academic programs, and they're well-trained theoretically, right? Um, where their training is lacking, which I think is the case in much of academia now and is a major criticism of academia, is that in practical training, they are woefully inadequate, mm. right? And... Um, 
And so uh, the th- those things aren't the things that you would imagine. Mm. Um, what they are is that, um, you know, if you the things we do in public policy every day are we write op-eds, right? Mm-hmm. We uh, deal with donors. We have to tell donors no sometimes when they make inappropriate requests. Mm. We have to price the work to make sure that we can make enough money in the think tank to fund right. the work and the, and the salaries of the fellows. These are all things uh, dealing with the media, engaging with the press, mm. engaging with the legislature, right? Mm. These are all things that they don't actually have a lot of experience in. And so when they come into us, they don't know how these systems actually work and how they need to leverage them and work with them and collaborate with them in order to be successful. Mm. This is so interesting, Laura Rollins. You are the founding president of the Western Massachusetts Policy Center. We're talking about how to identify needs for smart and effective policy. And we're talking about making uh, a think tank, and I'm making air quotes right right here, accessible to, well, everyone, so that it impacts on people's lives where needed. We're going to be right back. We're going to talk about more of what the Western Massachusetts Policy Center does and how you can be part of the Policy Center and contribute to it. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. W-O-R-K. Work News Radio. Next up, incidents of pressing all the elevator buttons unexpectedly spike on Bring Your Kid to Work Day. But first, the latest on a team lunch that wasn't ordered through Easy Cater. I'm in the break room where lunch that was previously announced on the way has now been downgraded to hopefully soon. Mm, fingers crossed, Michelle. Fingers crossed. Newsflash, it's hard when the food is late, but at Easy Cater, we make hard easy. With food for work delivered on time and is ordered from over 100,000 restaurants. Order 24-7 at easycater.com. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating? 
but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back and we are talking to uh, founding president, Lauren Rollins, about the Western Massachusetts Policy Center. And during the break, Lauren, we were talking about uh, that it really is, uh, you, you, you pointed down, it's a, this is a, uh, what, what were your words? Uh, I don't remember. We're looking we're, down. We're, we're looking, not, yeah, we're trying to affect downward. Um, like, right, so we think of the grassroots kind of thing, but you're really, it's constituent levels that you're trying to impact, and not just impact in terms of what policies may be adopted, but have them be pr- part of the process in determining what policies need to be adopted and how they impact on people. Do I get that right? Yeah. Uh, of the many uh, reasons that a center like this needs to exist, I think a major one, and especially when we're talking about things like the you know continued more indictments of a former president, right? Um, the, one of the major reasons why it's important is because people across the political spectrum in the United States are incredibly disenfranchised from the policymaking, from legislation, from the things that uh, we, th- we vote for certain things, we think we're going to get things in exchange for those votes, and then what happens is people get increasingly frustrated when that doesn't happen. And so uh, I, the goal is here to re-enfranchise or enfranchise as many people into the understanding of how the public policy process affects them and how they can actually affect change in ways that are um, demonstrable and will uh, be noticeable to them when they feel like the system isn't really serving them anymore. Uh, this is Dan. I have a question, a more specific question, maybe about a public policy, and I would want to see how an organization like this would tackle it. I've been reading in the news and from the Washington Post and a lot of liberal organizations about uh, the liberal uh, drug policies in Oregon, for example, and maybe it's comparable in, in Massachusetts. There's been a push to... Um, uh, not criminalize, to decriminalize. decriminalize, even the hard drugs, even the non-marijuana, you know, all of that. And now I'm starting to read a lot of articles where there's a lot of policy division in uh, drug policy, where there's some think we should just continue on the path we're doing. It's going to take time. Yes, we have seen an increase in some drug overdoses and drug use and and all of that. And I'm using that as an example because some people's lived experiences are going to be totally different than other people's lived experiences who might want to be a fellow uh, in the organization that that you created. So how do you tackle internal divisions um, that naturally arise given people's different and desperate uh, uh, understandings of these complicated issues? Openly and transparently and Mm -hmm. encouraging that kind of dialogue. We can't fix public policy or make any progress as long as we're entrenched in places where we cannot take opposing or different viewpoints and sit down and figure out what are the best parts of one and the best parts of another and put something together that's going to work for a vast majority of people with the least unintended consequences. Mm. Um, A lot of think tanks and a lot of organizations, because they've been politicized and because Mm. of the way they're funded, Mm -hmm. um, are afraid to have those open disagreements out Mm. out loud and, and have a lot of institutional control to make sure that those things don't spill out into 
the public, in fact. Right. Um, and uh, that's been detrimental to democracy, frankly, because mm. we, if we have expertise, mm -hmm. we have to show people that expertise does not mean that you are always right or always wrong, or mm. that one thing is the panacea that will end all problems for everyone. Right. It mm. is a, it, we need as many diverse perspectives, giving us as much diverse and useful and inclusive information as possible so that we can make policy that actually makes sense. Mm. Yeah. I only brought that up because, uh, Buzz, we, we talk here and about like Portugal uh, served as an example for a lot of states in the United States and Oregon has begun to grow. But now they're dealing with a lot of the social ramifications of, of making that. And now people are sort of like there's a division internally about how, what best to pursue because what's best practices. It's going to change for a lot of people. Some people maybe who have business interests locally don't want people next to their business using. And then it's like, well, where, you know, how far does the state go in terms of regulating that in terms of being like, well, you can't do that here, but you can do that over there. Or do we have more laissez-faire kind of like the state shouldn't intervene. This person's having this issue and kind of like leave them, leave them be. There you have it, Lauren Rollins. Dan Torres is lusting to be a fellow <laughs> with the Western Mass. I already policy. have a job. He's, he's trying to get rid of me. That's what I think is happening here. He really wants to run the board, I'm and that's gonna, what he's doing. I think in that case, I'm going to decline politely. <laughs> <laughs> and who would blame you? I have to ask if people want to learn more about the Western Mass Policy Center or want to contribute to make it happen and get that brick and mortar headquarters that it needs. Uh, how do people do that? So we are at, uh, we can be reached by our, on our website, which is wmpolicy.org. WM for Western Mass. Policies? policies. Just policy singular. Okay. Dot .org. org. Um, and then if you'd like to donate, um, you can send us a check to P.O. Box 935, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01061. Will they find that address on the website? It is on the website, yes. And if somebody wants to talk to somebody, perhaps you, they can do that through the website? They can do it through the website. My uh, personal phone number is on that website, and so is my email address. I am accessible, and that is part of the ethos of the Policy Center, is that we are not a cloistered institution. We are out in the community doing the work with the people we live with as neighbors. It's wmpolicy.org. Policy is singular. Uh, we only have about a minute left. Where do you want to leave our listeners with? Um, well, uh, I'd like to leave listeners with um, kind of the uh, an, an interesting aspect of the design, which I think is important to understand. Um, a lot of the barriers to better public policy and uh, more workable policy that most everyday people can uh, see the effects of um, are essentially gatekeepers throughout society. We have lots of good ideas. There are plenty. There's plenty of data already that exists from people at the ground level. And um, we are, we're in the business in the policy center. It's essentially, we're standing up a prototype of a model that is a different kind of model of public policy organization that helps to remove some of those gatekeepers, if not all of them, and uh, find ways to bypass them so that we don't have to ask for permission from people who are incentivized not to give it. Well, as our democracy is being threatened on a national level, you want to make policy development more democratic. Indeed. More transparent. Yes. It's the Western Mass Policy Center. You can find it at w, uh, wmpolicy.org. She is the president, Lauren Rollins. And thank you, Lauren, for joining us on Talk to Talk. Thank you all for joining us on Talk to Talk. And like Lauren, let's all try to walk the walk. <laughs> Thank you.
Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? It's the music you grew up with. WHMP and the news will be right here when you get back. The Valley's Pure Oldies, 96.9 and 100.5. 